listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Happy July. We uh, continue our summer series, The New Ordinary, today, talking about ordinary vision or maybe, better put, ordinary provision. Um, this is a, a story that is talked about and written about and painted about this story um, about this uh, Abraham and his almost sacrifice of Isaac. And before we get into it, I was reminded this week of a story where uh, two children had come home from church and they were in an argument and their mother wanted to know what they were arguing about. And they were arguing about what was God's name. So one child was convinced that God's name was Howard. And another one was convinced that God's name was Andy. And so they're, they're kind of at it. And you know, as siblings can do, they disagree. And so the mother tries to um, differentiate what's going on. So she asked the one child, so what makes you think that God's name is Howard? And he said, well, they taught us that in church. She said, well, exactly what did they say? He said, when you pray, pray, our Father who art in heaven, Howard be thy name. (laughs) Aw, she said, that's not his name. It's it's hallowed. He goes, what kind of name is hallowed? (laughs) No, no, no. Like like his his name should be revered. His name should should be sanctified. His name should be, you know, thought of as holy. So they turned to the other kid, like, what did you think God's name was? He said, I think God's name is Andy. Well, who told you that? Well, it was in a song we sang. Well, exactly what did you sing? He said, Andy walks with me, Andy talks with me. (laughs) So what is God's name? So the word God is just a title, right? It's like father or mother, um, teacher, preacher. It's not a name. Um, and I don't know about the rest of you, but when I grew up, um, you did not call your parents by their name, right? You called them by the title, right? I called my mom and dad, mom and dad. I don't think I ever called my dad Bob. I don't know what he would have done had I done so. And I know that I never called my mom Sue because I'm still alive. <laughs> Because right? <laughs> that just would not have happened. So the same, the same is with our God, right? So we refer to God as God, or in the Hebrew, if they use the term Elohim, which just is a Hebrew word for God, that's a, that's a title of, of, of God, not, not a name. So the name of God, we're not exactly sure how to pronounce the name of God in Hebrew. It's made up of four letters. Um, there are four Hebrew letters. Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. But again, we're not exactly sure how those four letters ought to be pronounced. So there's two primary ways in which that name does get pronounced. Um, one of them, and the most common way, is to, in English anyway, is to pronounce it as Yahweh. That's an attempt to kind of pronounce those. And you might, perhaps you've heard that before as God's name. There's another, uh, which is Jehovah, which is, believe it or not, just another pronunciation of that same Hebrew name, (laughs) 
which it does sound quite different, but if you think about people that you know, especially somebody from a different culture than you, that might have a name, but the name is, is, is a cultural name. It's like the name from, from that place. So I have friends from Germany who are named Johan. And I have friends from Greece that are also named Ioannes, or, or Yanni, we call them. Um, Yanni and Johan are both John. They're just, I mean, John is the English pronunciation of the name. It would be Juan in Spanish. It would be Ian if we were Scottish. <laughs> that was supposed to be a Scottish accent. It didn't come out the way it was supposed to. <laughs> Don't laugh that hard at that one. That wasn't, that wasn't an intended joke like the others. Um, but yeah, so, so Jehovah is, is basically taking the Hebrew name of God and writing it in um, German, but then pronouncing it in English. <laughs> that's, how, that's how we got that name. So whether, whether we say Yahweh or whether we say Jehovah, it is interesting that in our Bibles... We never see those words, right? So you can read your Bible for the next 50 years, and you can read it, go, just move around from translation to translation to translation, and you never see that name used in the Bible, which is funny because the name appears on almost every page of the Bible. So if you were actually reading it in Hebrew, you would see the name literally everywhere, yet the name never appears in our English translations. So why is that? What's happening? Well, in the same way that I don't call my parents, or uh, may they rest in peace, I didn't call my parents by their first name. I called them by a title. It was also common in Jewish circles to refer to God as God, as the Lord, and not by name, right? It was by a title. Now, titles don't necessarily mean uh, that there's, you're impersonal, right? I was very personal with my parents. But yet, we still, they still used the title. So, when the Jews were reading scriptures, or when they were even copying scriptures sometime, when they came across the name of God to revere it, to kind of keep it holy, they, they wouldn't pronounce it. Um, they would substitute uh, for Yahweh um, the word uh, Adonai, which means uh, Lord. So the, the mantra, the Jewish mantra is Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Shema Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. That Adonai, both times there, in the text, uses the name Yahweh. But again, they, they're not going to speak to their God by name the same way I'm not going to speak to my parents by name. They're going to use a title. And so the title they used was a Hebrew word that meant Lord. I hope this isn't too technical for you today. But when we read in our English translations, this is, why, this is how you will know if you're reading your English Bible that the name Yahweh is actually being used because Lord is, is in all caps. Um, the, the L might look a little larger, but you can definitely tell a capital R and a capital D from a lowercase r and a lowercase d. And so when you're reading through, when Lord is in all caps... That's the name Yahweh. And they're just kind of following the Jewish tradition of using Lord. So if you read Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And the term there for Lord is the term Yahweh. 
Now, growing up, uh, we kind of learned that God had lots of names, like Jehovah Jireh, which we sang about today, or Jehovah Nisi, or Jehovah Rapha, or Jehovah Sikkanu. And that, that process or that practice kind of got carried a little far, um, so far that we would say not only that does God have these particular names, but based on the need that you have, you should use the name of God that's related to that need. So if you're sick, you should pray to Jehovah Rapha. Uh, if you, if you need, a, if you need um, a champion, you should pray to Jehovah Nisi. If you need provision, you should pray to Jehovah Jireh. Well, that's a little problematic because one, we're not praying to different gods, we're praying to the same God. And two, that almost makes it sound like it's a little magical. Like if you use just the right words, then God will do the thing that you want God to do. But, but God's, God's not like that. I mean, God's not just waiting around for you to use just the right words or just the right incantation. And then when you do it, he's going to do what you've asked for. I mean, that's, that's so capricious or it almost sounds like we're almost in control of God at that point, right? Like if I can use just the right word, aha, God, I got you because I said this and not that. So now you got to do something, right? Um, that would be amazing. That, that's, that's not God. That's genie, right? Like out of the bottle. You know, you rub the bottle and the genie has to do what you tell it to do. But that's not who our God is. Now we say things we, like we beseech God, like God come. You know, let your spirit fill this presence, uh, you know, this place. Like, but those, those are requests, not commands. Um, and in some ways, those are requests that are really already in action. Now, certainly, I think you should think this. God doesn't need you to give God good ideas. It's not like God's just kind of sitting around like, what should I do today? And then he hears a prayer and he goes, oh, that's a good idea. I think I'll do that. Right? If, if you think God needs your ideas, then you need to have a bigger idea about who God is. <laughs> right? Because God is going to do what's right. God is going to do what's just. And so our, our prayers are really as probably as much for us as anything. Because in our prayers, it shapes us to become more like God. And I think God does teach us by having us pray, having us, you know, be thankful for things and having us even petition to ask for things. He kind of teaches us and he kind of shapes our, our wills and he kind of shapes our disposition the way it should be shaped. And he does that through kind of teaching us and to pray and kind of hearing our prayers. So this phrase, Jehovah Jireh, which again we sang about today, that term, that phrase, occurs only once in all of Scripture. Just one time does it use that phrase. And if we gave a more literal translation for it, it would say this, Yahweh will see. That's the basic definition of Yahweh, Yahweh, or if you prefer, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord God will see. But what does it mean that the Lord God will see? I mean, it's why we titled today's sermon, Ordinary Vision, or Ordinary Provision. 
Because it's an idiom to say that the Lord God will see. Like if one of you gave me, called me up and said, hey, Robbie, I need you to do this for me, whatever it is. And I said, I'll see to it. What I mean by that, and what I think you would understand by that phrase, is that I'll take care of it. I'll see to it means I'll provide. I'll make sure it happens, right? You're out of town. You forgot to lock your door. You want me to go lock your door? And I said, I'll see to it. It means I'll do it. It means I'll make sure it happens. And that's exactly what the phrase means in Hebrew. To say the Lord God will see, it means the Lord God will make sure it happens. The Lord God will provide, which is then, that's how we translate it, right? The Lord will provide. And this is the conversation that happens. Abraham and Isaac, they've left their kind of workers behind, and just the two of them are now kind of um, hiking up the mountainside. And Isaac's like, hey, Dad, I see the knife, and I, and I see um, the wood, but uh, I don't see a sacrifice. Like, I think we're leaving something behind, right? And Abraham says, Jehovah Jireh. He says, the Lord will see. The Lord will provide. Um, now, certainly, Isaac wasn't thinking, uh, what's my dad up to? Right? He was thinking, hey, we forgot something. Right? We, sh- we should go back we should, you know, with, the, with the guys, with the workers. Like we, need to, we need to get the sacrifice to kind of bring up the hill. But of course, we know the story is going a little differently. Now, that story, again, growing up, I always heard that story referred to as the sacrifice of Isaac, which is perhaps the worst name I've ever heard for a story in Scripture. Like, you know, um, when you're reading Scripture, sometimes your, your paragraphs or your sections will have those little subheadings, but you should, for the most part, ignore those. <laughs> Ignore them because I think they're often titled wrong, and ignore them because sometimes I think even the subsections aren't right. Like I think our chapter and verse is helpful because I can say, hey, let's all turn to Genesis 22.3 and we can all find it. But then we sometimes will get to the end of the chapter and we'll stop reading because, hey, I've read a chapter, uh, as opposed to kind of reading to the end of the story. So the chapter and verse divisions, and even more so, Maybe those little kind of subheadings came along much, 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 much later. That's a fairly recent phenomenon. That wasn't part of the kind of the inspired text. So, so in this case, referring to this as the sacrifice of Isaac, uh, obviously, the problem with that title is Isaac was not sacrificed. <laughs> um, and so we, if, you, if you title it the sacrifice of Isaac then you're reading the story up to this point, and when you see that kind of Abraham has, has Isaac tied up and on the altar, and the knife is in his hand, you think, oh, well, yeah, this is about the sacrifice of Isaac. But that's, I don't know, it's, it'd be like watching a, watching a superhero movie and thinking it's primarily about the villain, because you stopped watching halfway through when the villain had kind of gotten the upper hand. And you didn't keep watching to the end of the film where the superhero ends up you know, resolving the issue. It's just like completely kind of missing the point. I did want us to kind of us to look at a few pieces of art. I, I said when I opened up that this story, the, the story of Abraham and Isaac and what the Jews call the binding of Isaac, which I think is a much better title, 
um, is, has filled sermons and um, commentaries and stories and essays and artwork, lots and lots of artwork. So this first piece of artwork comes from Rembrandt. So Rembrandt uh, painted this. A couple of things that I love about Rembrandt's depiction of the binding of Isaac. One in particular is the way in which the angel has grasped uh, Abraham's hand. He's like kind of staying him. He's kind of, kind of preventing him. Like in that picture, the knife is actually no longer in Abraham's hand. He's dropped it, and it's in the process of falling. I think Rembrandt has really captured here what this story is actually about and the way in which the rabbis uh, would read this story, the ones who titled this The Binding of Isaac, right? Not The Sacrifice of Isaac. So this next one comes from Caravaggio, another kind of great master. And in Caravaggio's, Abraham still has the knife in his hand. Isaac, this one, this one haunts me a bit. Isaac is obviously in some anguish, like there's this kind of, the, there's no way he could have expected this was about to happen. And you kind of see this kind of captured in, in this piece. But also here, the angel has his hand, right? The angel's kind of preventing him from, preventing Abraham from kind of moving forward. Um, the last one is from Leal. Uh, this, this is a great one as well. And the angel hasn't quite, doesn't quite have his hand on Abraham yet, but you can kind of see him kind of moving in that direction. And so what the, what the masters, I think, these, these artists have captured in their version of kind of the telling of the story is that at the heart of this story, the significant point is not that Abraham has picked up a knife and is willing to kill his son. That's not the most important part of the story. Human sacrifice was actually part of ancient Canaanite worship. It was a way in which people in that part of the world at that time would practice the worship of their gods. And so the idea that you might sacrifice a person, believe it or not, was an idea that was like, oh, they must be worshiping. And so when Abraham goes to pick up his knife, as remarkable as you might think that sounds, contextually, it's not as remarkable then as it seems now. What is remarkable is that the God that Abraham is getting ready to worship is like, put your knife down, son. This is not the way we're going to do it. I'm not that kind of God. I'm going to provide, and I'm going to provide something so much more. And it's not just that he provides a ram, and then they, they kill the ram, but they, it's that he provides the son, and the son is the one that's blessed. Now, there are interesting things that go on with this story if we continue to read. And it really takes some eyes to see these kind of details. But as with that kind of expression of, on Isaac's face in Caravaggio, that, that second painting, um, Isaac never reappears in a story in Genesis that Abraham is always also in. I want you to just think about that. We get a story where Abraham has bound Isaac and almost sacrifices him. And after that, you never see Isaac anywhere near Abraham. 
Now, if we think through that in terms of what we know about kind of trauma and, and, and abuse and what that means. I mean, if your father tied you up and had a knife over you, it, it would undo you. It would damage you. And if you were able, there's a good chance that you would avoid him. And the author of Genesis never, never tells us a story where the two of them are together. And then it tells us this. This is interesting because there's a story shortly after this where Isaac leaves and he finds a wife. Her name's Rebecca. And he brings her back to his mother's tent, to the tent of Sarah. Well, why does Sarah have her own tent? Why is Sarah not with Father Abraham? You know, our good old Father Abraham. Well, I'll tell you why Sarah's not with Father Abraham. Because he almost killed her boy. <laughs> She's like, I'm sleeping over here. You're not allowed to tie up the, the child of the promise and hold a knife to his throat. Now, I'm not saying that they got separated and that's kind of clear in the text. But I am saying that for, you know, reading between the lines, the fact that Sarah, after that, seems to have her own place apart from Abraham and that Isaac never appears again in a story with Abraham. Well, there's one story. I take it back. There's one story where we see Abraham mentioned that Isaac is there. It's at the burial of Abraham. He shows up to his father's funeral. And guess who else is there? Ishmael, his older brother, who also had been kind of abandoned or forsaken by Abraham. I don't want you to misunderstand me here. This is not a sermon to kind of bash Abraham. Abraham's a, a good guy. He's a faithful guy. There's a lot that Abraham did that was right. I mean, he followed the Lord. He believed in the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. Now, he did lie and say that his wife was his sister one time to try and get away from a pharaoh. And he did, you know, as we talked about last week, expel um, his slave girl who had given birth to his to his um, firstborn son, and he did tie up a son, right, um, that God stopped. He said, don't, don't do it that way. But still, Scripture does speak highly of him. Like you don't, I mean, that in itself should be a certain amount of solace, right? That you don't have to be perfect to be loved by God. You don't have to be perfect to be used by God. You don't have to be perfect for God to use you and your work to kind of do great things. But, but we then, you know, we talked about nostalgia a week or two ago. We don't want to kind of romanticize these stories, but actually kind of look at the past for what's good about it and also what's bad about it. Identify its kind of warts and things to kind of say, hey, yeah, that's, that's the part we'd be happy to leave in the past. And part, the part that we're happy to leave in the past here is child sacrifice. <laughs> Let's leave that in the past. In fact, that's a precursor to something else that we'll eventually learn. Because by the time we get to the book of Hebrews, it's also reading the story. Like Rembrandt, like Caravaggio, like Leal, like all those rabbis, everybody wants to read the Abraham story. Paul 
talks about it in Romans. James talks about it in the book of James. The author of Hebrews talks about it in the, author of, in the book of Hebrews. And when he's reading it there, the author of Hebrews is kind of looking back at that story. And um, this is where I think we really have something to kind of learn from the way Scripture reads Scripture. Like, when we call it the sacrifice of Isaac, mistakenly, I'd say, we end up comparing Abraham to God and Isaac to Jesus. And we're like, well, Abraham was kind of willing for his son to die, and God was willing for his son to die. But Abraham didn't, Abraham didn't have to go through with it, but God did. So, like, God's a better Abraham because he let his son die. Or worse, God's a better Abraham because he killed his son. And there's one thing Scripture is very clear about. God did not kill Jesus. We killed Jesus. People killed Jesus. God raised him from the dead. That's God's response. And what we see, and this is the point that Hebrews makes so clearly, in the resurrection, we see that God wasn't done when he told Abraham to put down the knife and not kill his kid. He had more to say. And what else he had to say was we should all put down our knives. Because not only should we not sacrifice children, we shouldn't sacrifice animals. That, that there's a way forward that is a way through self-sacrifice. The self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That Jesus' death and God's response to Jesus' death was going to save the world. That God was going to provide, but he was going to provide more than just a sacrifice for the day. He was going to provide salvation for the world. He was going to provide the ultimate provision. He was going to provide all of our needs. And he was going to do it in a way that not only was he not going to engage in violence, but he was going to teach us to be like him and not engage in violence either. That's a hard lesson to learn. But it, it is, I believe, the gospel truth of this story. That the ordinary vision that we now have is a vision of peace. It's a vision of nonviolence. It's a vision of we serve literally the Prince of Peace who came and spoke peace to the storm so that even, even the sea and waves obey him and come at peace. And he seeks peace to you to calm the storm in your heart and in your mind, to heal your past and your trauma, to overcome your sickness and your anxiety. That's the one we serve. And that's an, that is an extraordinary vision. And it is a vision of provision. And that's what we have. So Jesus comes and he says, blessed are the peacemakers. He says, turn the other cheek, go the second mile, Give them your shirt when they sue you for your coat. And Paul will say similar things. Paul will say, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. If you have an enemy, buy them lunch. Feed them. 
For the whole law is summed up in this one statement, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the good news. It's the good news that we celebrate day in and day out, certainly Sunday, week after week. It's the good news that we celebrate as we come to the table. Because as we come to the table, it's a table not that we lay a sacrifice on, but it's a table that we receive the one who has been sacrificed. We pray, Lord, send your spirit and make these elements, the body and blood of Christ, so that as we receive them, we might become the body of Christ, then sent out into all the world. You are what you eat. You've heard that phrase? Where every Sunday we eat Christ so that we will be Christ, so that we can be the embodied presence of peace, of shalom, of nonviolence, of healing, not to add to the anxiety or the stress or the depression or the trauma in the world, but to heal it, to make it whole, to make it well. It's a vision for how we ought to live. And, it's a, and he gives us the provision in, a, in order to get there. So what we find here in the binding of Isaac is an amazing story. A story of a, of a God and his messengers who holds back the hand, who makes us drop our knives, who calls us to a better way forward. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.